Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, Westside. Good morning, Battersea Online, in your ear. My name is Joe Frost, and we are having our fourth and final uh, session on what it means to be human. Um, this is a series that we have been running through over the last few weeks. If you haven't heard, you can go on YouTube or on the podcast and listen back. Um, but this is really um, a series that's encouraged us to stop and take notice to pay attention to some of the storylines that are around us and how they shape us um, and how they affect how we see ourselves and how we live. Um, We've been using the Being Human lens, um, which helps us um, bring into focus some of the stuff that we see. We put lenses on our faces um, and we use lenses all the time to view the world around us. It brings some things into sharp focus and calls us to pay attention to them. So this lens asks us to pay attention to some of these core aspects of our humanity, our sense of significance, our connection, our presence in and of the world and our participation in it. Um, we notice these storylines all around us, forming us and shaping us. And we notice, too, that the Bible has something to say about our humanity, uh, that the storylines in the Bible root and ground these core aspects of what it means to be human uh, in the nature of God. Right at the beginning of our story, we hear that we are what's called image bearers, a weird phrase that actually isn't mentioned that often in the Bible and yet is referred to and hinted at throughout Scripture. And it's this idea that says that we are to represent God, we are to project his character, and we are to share in his nature out into the world. Uh, We've looked at some of the flawed image bearers uh, that we see in Scripture These are fellow human beings like us who show us glimpses of who God is and what being God's representative can look like. But they also show us just how deformed we can be and how unhuman we can behave. So we have also, therefore, looked at Jesus, the perfect image bearer, the exact image of God, who does what we cannot do because he knows the Father He loves like the Father, he draws near like the Father, and he does what he sees the Father doing. So this is this series of being human. And we are closing out the series today, and we are coming in for a speedy landing. We are looking at the last two core sections here of participation and presence. Um, If for those of you that were here as we started we've been looking at some of the big cultural stories that we are surrounded with. And we started with a good old secular story. This is the story that puts doubt at the center of our beliefs and makes us doubt our own significance. The stories that we are immersed in every day convince us that we either need to earn our significance or convince the world that we have it. Do I matter? 
Um, it's made me laugh recently. I don't know how many of you have seen good old McDonald's has been advertising. Thank you. Yes, right. Are you McNugget worthy? Um, so much so. I think this is like, an, in my day, this would have been the last Rolo being shared. I don't know how many of you remember Rolos being advertised, but if, did you love somebody enough to give them your last Rolo? Do you love them enough? Are they worthy enough to get a McNugget from you? Um, this story is around us all the time, idea of worth. What about this idea of being connected? Our individualist stories in today's culture give us loads of examples about how the world says all relationships orbit me. My significance, my connections, my presence, my participation. Um, we become afraid that our relationships won't give us what we want, and we become fearful and self-centered. You just need to have a little look on the BBC News app this morning to see a couple of stories where fear of reputation, our home secretary, or uh, fear of stories or of what might people might think, Philip Schofield, the effect that some of these fears around individual stories, desires, selfishness, all affect, twist, distort, upset our relationships. We live in a world where we put the individual first and foremost, and it fragments and it twists so much of us. Today we're going to look at another classic. We're in postmodernism. This is the story of personal perspective, the idea that truth, meaning, language, all of these ideas, reality even itself, becomes perspective. It is my personal view, my truth, my understanding, my reality. You do you, I'm being true to myself. This story is the story of deconstruction, it's the story of power dynamics, and it leads ultimately to isolation and chaos. For me, when we want to talk about this idea of presence with our humanity, I often end up needing to talk about absence. When my, husband, my friend's husband died, different people responded in really different ways. Some people literally crossed the road to avoid her. They didn't know how to face the grief that she was going through. She was the physical representation of their worst nightmare. And they, had, they couldn't face confronting it. Others came alongside her. But we found as we did that our story, our cultural story, has no habits or behaviors, rituals or space to really acknowledge grief well. We threw a party, we said a few kind words, we shared poignant and funny stories, and then we were encouraged to move on. It was left to the individual, to her, to invent her own coping strategies, to navigate her own journey, buffeted by the waves of grief with little, if any, support. We know that absence isn't a nothing. We all know what absence is. Absence defines the space, the gap that should be filled, the thing that is missing, the empty chair where someone once sat. We sense where something should be 
but isn't. We experience the loss of what it was, but is now gone. Everything in the orbit of an absence is affected. We grieve it. We mourn it. To be human is to recognize the importance of being here, now. And when someone or something is not, it's not okay. To be human is to be profoundly and deeply affected by the world that is not as it should be. But postmodernism is built on a world that is not as it should be. It knows that there is a gap between how the world should be and how the world is, but it hasn't got a clue what to do about it. Because without a God who conquers death and gives us hope, all that is left is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. We build distance and numbness into our lives in so many different ways because we cannot cope with a world that doesn't know that tomorrow every little thing will be okay. So we have a story that encourages us to separate and to isolate. We have a society that deals very little with the messiness of life. Our bins vanish every week. The rubbish of the street mysteriously swept away from the night before. Dirt, waste, death or decay. They're shoved to the margins of our society. Um, I can never say her name. There's an author who says, uh, there's no such thing as the voiceless. Only the deliberately silenced or the preferably ignored. We put our elderly in care homes, refugees on barges, dead in boxes, so that our lives can remain perpetually young, uncontaminated and distracted. This is our cultural story, and I hate it. Even consider just how much of our lives happen on virtual spaces. Most of us have moved online to shop, to work, to hear sermons, uh, to relate to family and friends, and my goodness, it's an amazing gift. When my family is scattered all over the world, I connect. I don't have to be in Westside and Battersea for us to share in holy moments together. And yet, we can't escape that even now our connections are separated and mediated. They happen in isolation. Do we ask ourselves what we're giving up when we lack proximity to each other? We get lonely. And mental health challenges saw as so many of us struggle with our past, our bodies, or our place in the world. It is not good for us to be alone. The world's a mess. And our stories drive us away from ourselves, from each other, and from God. We're left in chaos as we make it up on our own. Alienated, separated, the cultural stories offering us a full life just end up delivering us with exhaustion. There's this awful meme out there saying, adulthood is saying, but after this week, things will slow down a bit over and over again until we die. It's funny because it's true. 
And it's just exhausting. I tend to have two answers to the question, how are you? Busy or tired? And I just, I don't know if it's the same for you, but there has to be more than this. This is not what Jesus promised. Presence becomes irrelevant. Participation is self-defining. But there is more to life than this. So let's look at that um, one of those flawed image bearers that we find in the Bible. So we're going to have a very quick look at a prophet named Elijah. Uh, Elijah is the ultimate powerful one-man band. Um, he is the wild man of the Israelites. He's loud, he's brash, he's the lone ranger prophet. And he is running around in the times of the kings of Israel. And uh, to say that he's always up for a confrontation is putting it a little bit mildly. He's very comfortable with uncomfortable truths, and he is willing to speak God's word to anyone in authority. Um, potentially his most famous battle uh, was with the 450 prophets of Baal, uh, the cultural religion of the day. And we read about it in 1 Kings 18. Basically, Elijah turns up and proposes a God-off, a my God's better than your God competition. Uh, the challenge was really simple. The prophets of Baal were to pray and to see if their God, Baal, uh, would light the fire on their altar. Simple. Then Elijah would pray on his own and see if his God, Yahweh, would light his fire. Whoever's God acted was the true God. And despite their wailing, their self-mutilating, and their raving, accompanied by Elijah's taunts, Baal did not answer his prophet's call. There was no fire. There was no response. Nobody was paying any attention. And then Elijah stands up. And ever one for the dramatic, he orders copious amounts of water to be poured onto the altar. So it's drenched, sopping wet. And with one prayer, he calls on the name of the Lord and God answers him and consumes the entire altar with fire. God answers him. Elijah is vindicated and Yahweh is the one to God. Amazing, dramatic, fiery. And immediately after this undeniable victory, Elijah is gripped with fear. Queen Jezebel wants him dead for humiliating her God, and he legs it. He runs for his life. He has lost sight of God. He has lost sight of his people. And that instead, he could only see how alone he was, what he was up against. And he couldn't cope anymore. He runs into the desert, collapses under a bush, and begs God to take his life. He was done. He was spent. His work had gotten too much for him, and he couldn't carry on. This week has been Mental Health Awareness Week, and this is a guy in a mental health crisis. He is spent. 
And it's here under that bush that God sends his prophet an angel to look after him. He's given really basic provision, food, water, sleep. Because as the angel says, the journey ahead is too much for you alone. Elijah needed to partner with God, not do things for God. He had run so hard and so far in his own strength that he collapsed under the weight of it. And so Elijah refreshed and rested. He continues on further into the desert. And he is headed for a place that you may have heard of before. He goes to Horab. For those of you who are like playing, remember the place name. Horab is the place of the burning bush. It's also known in scripture as Mount Sinai. It's where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. Horab is the place of encounter. It's a holy place. A place where God is near. Elijah is seeking God. He has finally realized that to be human, to be God's image bearer, to be God's priest and prophet, to represent God out in the world, to do what is being asked of him, he has to do it from a place of intimacy. He needs a holy, personal God, and so he asks God to reveal himself. And God does so, not in the dramatic, like Elijah, big, loud, brash, fire, earthquake, hurricane, God turns up in a silence. And as Elijah returns, his actions are radically different. He's discovered that God wants to anoint new rulers and replace Queen Je Jezebel. He discovers that he is not alone. There are 7,000 followers of Yahweh. And he is instructed to take on a mentee so that he will no longer work alone. Elijah was a powerful, brave prophet, but he needed to submit to the presence of God and partner with God before he could participate in the work of God's kingdom. He needed a holy, present God. Here in Balaam, we have sung so many songs this morning about holiness. Um, we've been reminded as a community that we are in a season of consecration, of setting ourselves apart, of being made holy. And I, I don't know about you, but I tend to think of holiness as a very religious word, um, meaning other, set apart, sacred. And I don't know whether or not it was just me, but I feel like I missed half of the story and I was listening to Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, and it was just very helpful. Because he suggests for something to be holy, it needs to be in close proximity to God. Holiness isn't simply being set apart. It's actually coming near to move away from the common and draw close to the divine. God is a holy God, a God who comes near a God who is concerned with people and place and culture, so much so he became a human being. He didn't leave us in our mess, but came to clear it up for us. God is a personal and present God, and holy things 
are near to him. To be holy is to be present. To be human is to be holy. To be present to God. This is the coming of his kingdom, the coming near to God. This is what he invites us to partner with him for. And with all things, the best way to see what this means is to look at Jesus. Utterly, fully, completely present. The life of Jesus shows us a personal, present and active God comes near to us. Jesus, who spat on the mud to heal a blind man's sight. Jesus, who made a kid's pack lunch feed thousands. Jesus, who comforted the grieving by bringing the dead back to life. Jesus is the presence of God, the Emmanuel, the with us God. Let's take for a moment uh, an opportunity to just consider the words of John 1, the opening of John's gospel, the start of Jesus's story. In the message, it says this, whoever did want him, Jesus, whoever believed he was who he claimed and would do what he said, he made to be their true selves, their child of God selves. These are the God begotten, not blood begotten, not flesh begotten, not sex begotten. The word became flesh and blood, moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one of a kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. Jesus is the Emmanuel. It's not a name, it's a title. It means the with us God, who incarnated the future promise of God to dwell with his people. We read it right at the end of our, our story. Revelation 21 and 22, God dwells with his people and all is well. This is the reality of the God-man. Jesus come, getting his hands dirty, involved in the life of those around him. And this truth gets even more stark as we consider his death. Where he is flogged, lashed, stripped, tied to a post, thorns placed on his head, battered and bruised, carrying his own cross for his own death. Pushed into the ground, shoulder on the wood, a soldier feeling his wrists and his feet as nails are drawn in. The cross is lifted into position and the weight of the nails cause excruciating pain through his fingers and his arms. Every breath, a battle. Jesus' death is one of pain of dehydration and asphyxiation. He was present. And yet even in this moment, he's present too to those around him. He tells John to look after his mum. He prays forgiveness on those who put him on the cross, who are unaware of the role that they are playing. And he forgives the thief next to him, saying, you're going to join me in heaven. 
And it is finished, he gasped. Because Jesus is the come near God. He is the lamb who takes on our sin and dumps them where they belong. He commits his hand, his spirit to the Father. But this is not the end of our story. It cannot be because death cannot hold life itself. Jesus is resurrected. God is still the Emmanuel. He is still with us. And he sits in heaven. Hearing our cry, coming near to us. Through his spirit, he welcomes us. In a world that wants to put you on a pedestal and wait until you fall. Or in a world that may have written you off before you even got started. In a world where either you feel forgotten about or you're just faking it until you make it, hoping that nobody notices. Jesus says, this is too much for you to do alone. Rest with me. And we can do this together. In Matthew 11, it says, Come to me, all of you who are weary, carrying heavy burdens, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle of heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy to bear. The burden I give you is light. In a world that can be really heavy and very dark and very lonely, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me now. Not when you've got more time, when the kids are older, when you've sat your exams or when you've finished work. Not once a year when you can come to the conference or the worship event. Not when you're less distracted, a better friend, a better partner, a better parent or kid, or just plain better than you are now. Jesus says, come. I am holy. Come. There is no later with Jesus. There is only and always today. Jesus died to make us human. As a Dutch theologian, uh, Hans Rootmaker, said, Christ did not die to make us Christians. He died to make us human. This is his invitation to us for life in all its fullness, an invitation to intimacy, an invitation that you do not have to do this life alone. You're not supposed to. You get to partner with God. You get to draw close to him. But you also get to be his holy thing, drawing others to him too. I'd like to welcome the band back on as we come into land. Jesus has done it all. Jesus is the perfect human. Um, he didn't just argue with the oppressors of God's people. He didn't have a God off saying, my God is better than yours. He defeated them. Once and for all. So our invitation is to see the world as he sees. To partner with him. Draw close to him. 
find rest in him, know that you are utterly, completely, and fully forgiven. Know that you do not have to do life alone. But he is a holy God who invites his presence to us and invites us to partner with him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.